Welcome to the CSR Podcast. I'm Brian Brazo. When we think about the Renaissance, we often imagine an age of genius filled with masterpieces, thriving cities, towering political figures, and decisive events that changed the course of history, ushering in the modern age. Yet many aspects of modern European society and culture were also shaped during the Renaissance in smaller European towns and in more local contexts, populated by lesser-known figures of various social classes. In today's episode, we will be discussing the Renaissance from below with Professor Beat Kuhlmann. Beat Kuhlmann is Professor of Early Modern European History here at the University of Warwick. He holds two doctorates, the first of which he completed at the University of Cambridge and the second at the University of Bern. He has served as Director of Graduate Studies for the CSR and as Director of the Centre. Professor Kuhlmann is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and the Higher Education Academy, and he has been recognized as a Federal Expert of Heritage by the Swiss Department of Culture. He is the editor of A Cultural History of Food in the Early Modern Age, published in 2012, and the author of multiple books, including Drinking Matters, Public Houses and Social Exchange in Early Modern Central Europe, published in 2007, and a 2013 monograph on the role of towns, villages, and parishes in pre-modern European society. He has also published many scholarly articles in important journals, along with comment pieces in The Guardian, The Times, and The Conversation. Professor Kuhlmann, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What are some of the key research questions you've pursued to date? Well, in general, I've always been interested in social exchange and political agency in pre-modern Europe, first in England, but more recently in the German-speaking lands. And I've asked sort of research questions like, to which extent could common people shape their religious and uh, political lives, particularly at the time when there were strong pressures towards centralization and confessionalization? Then what role did communal institutions play? For instance, village assemblies or representatives like church wardens, councillors or jurors. And last but not least, where exactly did peasants and burghers manage to meet to discuss their affairs and to make their decisions? And that led me to sustain interest in a couple of institutions that probably represented the most important social centres of pre-modern Europe, namely parish churches and public houses. Can you tell us a little bit more about public houses and their role in pre-modern Europe? Well, the public house was perhaps the only major secular institution that was available and able to host a, a large number of people. The public house was ubiquitous from the later Middle Ages. It often served communal functions, for instance, providing assembly places, staging feasts. The rites of passage of inhabitants would usually take place. So it brought together across the social divides as many of um, the local population as possible. It also served as a sort of interregional hub because it was increasingly linked to the transport industry developing postal system. So they can see as communication hubs where the local and the global effectively intersect, where we can get access to popular discourses, where we can access to people, as it were, when they're, when they're letting their hair down, and also perhaps underestimated the sort of more important religious and political issues that were often discussed on the premises. What is your understanding of an approach to the Renaissance? You mentioned public houses, local assemblies, etc. 
Well, for me, the Renaissance is neither really a period nor a movement, nor am I particularly interested in the sort of classical links that we normally associate. But in a slightly unorthodox way, I think for me, it's about an intellectual stance which combines several aspects I value in historical work, namely the transnational perspective, looking at various different countries across the European continent, bridging that medieval early modern divide and going across the boundary that we often see in uh, around 1500 and then also being open beyond your own discipline. This is difficult, this is not always easy, but I think it's something well worth attempting. And that's exactly what the Renaissance, I think, is um, facilitating for us. So the idea of the Renaissance shapes your approach to research in a sense, as opposed to simply looking at the Renaissance as a period. It's it's an attitude toward researching the period, you would exactly. say. Exactly. And for me, I think what I can sort of bring to the, uh, the center is, as you said in your introduction, is to sort of look at it more from a below perspective. So the tradition of history from below, which goes beyond the sort of canon of established figure for every Machiavelli and uh, Dürer and more. There were millions of people that have tended to be ignored in Renaissance scholarship. Joan Scott famously asked, did women have a Renaissance? Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, did common people manage to shape their lives in innovative ways during this period? That's the kind of history that I'm interested in also. In practice, it tends to be the middling sort, possibly the most dynamic social group in the period. So the people who worked for their living, the craftsmen, the artisans, the peasantry that populated the um, European countryside. This goes back in Warwick a long time, obviously. Figures like E.P. Thompson, have been instrumental in bringing this to the forefront of attention. He tended to focus on later centuries. So for me in particular, it was the German historian Peter Blickler with his emphasis on communal institutions, the peasantry as a political agent. He sort of supervised my first ever university module. He always encouraged us to be open to debate and to bring in perspectives that were not quite perhaps what uh, is traditionally done. So these sort of influences are very much uh, present in my work. So would you say that your work then helps us listen to voices from the past that might have been neglected or not emphasized in scholarship. You mentioned women, for example, and I'm sure we can think of many others who have also been ignored by certain scholarly conventions or ways of approaching this period. Absolutely. I think it is our opportunity here, particularly in a center which is so interdisciplinary and and wide-ranging in its outlook, to bring different perspectives together. No one person can do everything. And obviously, while we need to be pursuing the sort of great intellectual traditions, we can try and complement this by also looking at the practical implementation of some of the ideas that were circulating at the time, or perhaps also try and reverse sometimes the sort of causality that we often have, sort of ideas lead to social practice. Maybe it's often the other way around that social practice informs ideas. And Machiavelli, for instance, draws on Alpine communities to exemplify his Republican ideas, and he sees them as models in many ways for a Republican system that is free from factions and, and, you know, rests on civic virtues. And he observes that not just in the classical heritage, uh, which he is reading, but also in looking beyond his own boundaries into areas that are normally not featured in the sort of typical Renaissance perspective. You mentioned the center. How does the center feature in your work and how does your work intersect with other work that's currently going on in the center? Well, first and foremost, it's a site 
of exchange, you know, where you can meet your colleagues. It's surprisingly difficult to actually, you know, interact with colleagues from other floors, from other departments. And the Renaissance Center, in a way, institutionalizes that. I particularly value the, the studio seminar series, particularly those papers who have a sort of a bottom-up theme. Recently, we featured work on alpine communities fostering a cult of uh, St. Mary Maudlin. Um, the Warwick art historian John Anderson did that uh, just a few weeks ago. Gabriel Bing from Cambridge examined uh, the political language in parish documents on the eve of the Reformation. So those are the things that I think are particularly valuable. When I was director, I could uh, push this agenda a little bit more directly. For instance, we had a workshop on arriving in the Renaissance where we looked at the particular practical situation of strangers arriving in a new place, that crucial moment of first arrival. Where do you go? Who do you meet? What kinds of institutions are available to that? Are they welcome? Are they suspicious? What's the attitude of the local population? Are there purpose-built uh, physical architectural structures to mediate that situation that has now led to perhaps a thematic cluster emerging in the center with an incoming Mary Curie research fellow Felicita Tramontana who works on the Holy Land uses parish records to study migration uh, in and around uh, Jerusalem my history colleagues Rosa Salzberg is working on the moment of welcoming strangers in Venice where the center of course has a permanent institutional base so I think that's been very helpful some of our research students recently pushed into this direction. Sara Miglietti, John Morgan were staging a conference on environmental history, uh, which has led to a edited volume for Routledge. And we have a research blog where people like Joanna Jordanu have recently examined the charity of the poor. So an intriguing thought that the poorer member of society were not just in receipt of charity, but also actually actively offering help to those uh, who needed it. Uh, she uses the Venetian Popolani on the basis of an article she's published in the Economic History Review. And which projects are you currently pursuing? What is your current work on? At the forefront of my mind is a sort of monograph plan for a study of rural autonomy in the Holy Roman Empire. So I tried what is it like when we zoom in not on the great principalities or ecclesiastical units, but when we zoom in on the smallest possible units. And I focused on self-governing single unit communities. Um, we know a lot about imperial free cities. We know a lot about the urban context, but there were literally hundreds of rural communities communities that had no immediate overlord. So what did they do in terms of political organization? Who was involved there? Were there separate values emerging from that? And the sort of first results suggest that there is a critical mass of this kind of political agency at the very grassroots level. There's a shared pride in their corporate political freedom. There's an enormous resilience and effort to try and defend this status against potential predators. So that led me also to think again about the sort of social depth of political awareness and expertise. We have no great uh, conceptual models guiding them. We have no experienced professional patricians that run these communities. But nevertheless, they seem to be working. They seem to be able to organize complex processes such as lawsuits. So again, you know, perhaps it points to the fact that this is not just an age of absolutism and an age of centralization. This is also an age where very much people can take matters into their own hands and where sophisticated political exchanges can happen in areas where you least expect it. 
That's quite interesting, this idea of lack of specialization and the sort of political non-expert. It makes me think somewhat of Iceland's football team <laughs> most recently. Are there any other instances of non-experts, non-specialists, amateurism, if we might want to think of it in that way in your work that you've found? Well, I think for over a decade now, I've been running a organization which is called the Warwick Network for Parish Research. And that's dedicated to the history and the culture and the heritage of local ecclesiastical communities. Perhaps one of the foundational institutions of the European experience full stop. I mean, literally every European was member of a parish community. It's one of the few things that they really had in common. So here's an excellent platform to get everybody, as it were, into view from the very poor who received the charity of the parishioners to to the very wealthy who were donating the most elaborate um, monuments, etc. So what we've been doing is organizing an annual symposium. This year we talked about reflecting the parish more generally. We had literary approaches to the late um, medieval parish. Previously we talked about micro-historical opportunities of studying that and we now have a platform called My Parish Online where people can find the first point of orientation about parish research, resources, digital editions, all kinds of events etc. And that's been a very strong feature of my work. Related to that, I guess, on the secular side is the Drinking Studies Network. And apart from the obvious appeal of the field studies that this kind of uh, work brings, it resulted from the realization of a number of scholars from this, the different disciplines here at Warwick. Drinking is actually a excellent point where we can find a deeper understanding of how people constructed their social bonds and what cultural values they held dear. Hardly any pre-modern transaction, whether it be a personal engagement or a business transaction or the welcome of strangers could take place without a drink. So to find that in all kinds of different sources, I think, has led us to try and institutionalize that kind of approach a bit more. It's now a national network. It organizes conferences. It has research clusters of which I can help to direct the one dedicated to cultures of excess. And the center has helped us to uh, launch certain workshop initiatives in that um, field as well. Many of the themes that you're discussing seem to have relevance and impact on our world today. Do you think the Renaissance and the topics of your study matter more than simply for specialized scholars? And how can this speak to us today and inform the way that we see the world? Yes, I think that the Renaissance has this potential to speak to a wider audience. I mean, the obvious link is heritage, isn't it? It's tourism. We are here just a few miles away from one of the sort of the great localities of the Renaissance, Stratford-upon-Avon, uh, where celebrations about the Shakespeare anniversary are going on as we speak. But I think more generally, and just relating to that point about parishes earlier on, the Renaissance is something that can help us uh, to find out more about European identity, about the development of our uh, of our culture, of our ideals, on a sort of relatively high level of, of you know uh, intellectual reflection, but also in everyday political practice, we can combine theoretical reflections by Machiavelli on republicanism with everyday political events, as I see them in my little rural micro polities. So in terms of understanding Europe and understanding many of the fundamental principles that we hold in, in terms of culture, in terms of politics, in terms of social organization, I think it has a lot to offer in that respect. You mentioned Machiavelli a few times. What do you think that Machiavelli would have to say about the recent political turmoil in Britain? I think Machiavelli would not be surprised about the divisions 
in societies. I think he was supremely aware and a little bit embarrassed about how faction-ridden political life was in his homeland. I think he was primarily interested, I would say, in making states and polities strong. And he would have certainly perceived what's been going on recently in the sort of Brexit debate as a potential weakening of coherence, as a potential problem that needs to be addressed. So I think he would have seen a lot of parallels to the sort of pursuit of isolated factional interest as opposed to trying to look for the wider, as it were, common good of the continent as a whole. And his comments on mercenaries might also apply as well. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. He was, um, I mean, with the point of view of the military organization here, for instance, he looked towards some of the Alpine republics and how militias uh, were perhaps the best way of, of, of military prowess because people had a, a stake in what they were defending. They had a personal connection to the kind of military exercises that were being called upon to perform, whereas mercenaries, of course, are about commercial, about their own interests, about uh, selling yourself to the highest bidder. And from that point of view, I guess, looking beyond the Italian practice was very much what was important for him as well. Mm -hmm. And important for fostering a sense of civic duty as well. Absolutely. So this understanding of you have something to offer to the Commonwealth, you devote your time, your resources in return for this political freedom that the um, polity gives to you, this exchange, uh, this give and take, I think was fundamental uh, to his thinking. We often think of him only as somebody who has something to say about princes and about matters of state and putting the ultimate purpose above the sort of means that you're employing to reach that. But he also thought very hard about how local political organization could be uh, made much more effective. Taking up this theme of contributing to a commonwealth and a common project, how do you see the future of the center developing? Well, I think it's supremely well placed to sort of send out signals in this post-Brexit world, you know, signals about the importance of transnational collaboration. We have uh, institutional links to Renaissance centers overseas. We are member of uh, associations that link Renaissance scholars across the boundaries. We have these fellowship schemes. We have people who are coming in for shorter or longer periods of time. So I think we really have to build on that and make that as strong as possible to mobilize that um, research and resource pool that we have, particularly also with the regard to postgraduate and postdoctoral work, where it's increasingly difficult to get people to engage with non-anglophone cultures because of the language issues that we have um, in many parts of our education system. So this can be a sort of a hub of, of excellence in um, addressing research that goes beyond the Anglophone boundaries. It can help us think about new ways also of seeing Europe uh, not just as a conglomerate of independent states, but also a sort of a common cultural heritage. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today. That was Professor Beat Kuman from the History Department here at the University of Warwick. For more information on topics discussed here today, including a link to Professor Kuman's own podcast series, Drinking Matters, which explores the important cultural role of pubs in early modern Europe, check out our website at www.tiny.cc forward slash CSR podcast. <laughs>